Hello and welcome to Bike Karma, episode 11. Thanks a lot for coming along for the ride today. Bike Karma is a podcast about all kinds of bicycles and all kinds of people. If you are interested in bicycles outside of your own genre, we're going to cover the gamut. I'm not trying to be everything to everybody. I'm just trying to be a little something to everybody. So today, we're going to check out fat bikes. And I'm going to ride one, take you on the ride with me. And we'll talk to Sean Gora from Cycling Concepts at their fat bike demo days. And then a little bit of a sad story, but a lot of fun talk as well. We're going to go check out Berlin Bicycle, one of my favorite local bike shops. And we're blessed with a lot in this area of the state. But this was one of my favorites. And we go there on their very last day. And I take you behind the scenes and introduce you to Chris Chisholm, who is the owner, Bruce Miller, Trevor Siener, and Mark Hoffman. Thanks for coming along for the ride. Here we go. So I'm here to Fat Bike Demo Days for Cycling Concepts out of Glastonbury, Connecticut. And they are letting people try out fat bikes, some for the first time, some trying out different models. And I'm here with Sean Gora, manager at Cycling Concept. And just, this is my first time really on a fat bike that actually fit me. Somebody let me borrow theirs for like five minutes once, but this is nice to go on the trails. So tell me about the fat bike phenomenon. Some people are concerned there might be a fad or something like that, or is it here to stay? No, I, I think it's I think it's here to stay. You know, it started off as um, kind of that snow, sand sort of bike, and it's actually migrated towards uh, being an actual mountain bike people are using year round. So you said a lot of the guys in the shop are going out on these? Yep, yep. Um, a lot of us have owned, uh, owned fat bikes for some time. I've had mine for a couple of years at this point and it's taken over as my main mountain bike. It seems to keep the interest throughout the season too, even even in the uh, spring and summer. Okay, so I I had fun on the trail. Trail, 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 trail. So I'm here at a fat bike demonstration and I have a framed Wolf Tracks a 1x10 setup with a rigid front fork, some big fat tires on it, some 26 by 4 inch fat tires. So let's see if this inspires any more confidence on the trail. I can tell you it's a lot like driving what you would imagine driving a tank is like. Not super heavy weight, but uh, definitely inspires a little bit more you're not scared of little things anymore well what I'm finding so far besides the need to get a lavalier mic is that it is a broad brush stroke is what this does to the trail helps to narrow out a lot of your mistakes so anything that you don't hit perfectly it forgives you for it. And I think that, that the fat stands for forgiveness so far. Well, I'm not gonna lie, this is pretty enjoyable as always trying a new type of bike. 
it certainly inspires more confidence on the trail. I tried a couple of stupid lines on the trail through some rocks and some baby heads, as some of you call them. And it just kind of flew and bounced off of them. It was very forgiving. I think the only danger here is becoming too confident of it. I mean, I had an accident on a road bike back in spring of last year. I broke four teeth on a pothole. So I'm kind of like a little nervous about going back out on the mountain bike, you know, so I knew that this was going to be a lot more forgiving on the trail, and it certainly was. You know, I was able to pick really bad lines, <laughs> and yes, still yes. it just bounced right over them. Um, so apart from, you know, having that forgiveness, to it. What else would you tell somebody who's never ridden a fat bike before about you know what the differences are? I think I think one of the biggest differences is the sheer amount of traction that you get with the bike. Um, you have a huge contact patch with that tire. You run very low pressure. You can climb almost anything with them, um, despite the fact that they may weigh a couple more pounds. The the, the traction just completely disintegrates that factor. Yeah, um, loose rock, loose sand, anything you can just stand up and. It, re it really up. does feel like you would imagine a monster truck to be like. Yep. And yep. Uh, I mean, I'm a big guy. I'm like, I'm over 200 pounds, and you put eight psi in the tires for me. <laughs> Is that typical? Yeah, yeah, typical. Um, you know, eight to 12, depending on the person. Um, some will run a couple pounds less in the front and in the back, just due to you know rider weight distribution and so forth but yeah yeah 8 psi that's probably about the lowest that we we typically go okay so for our listeners back in the uh, road cycling world who might be interested in trying it out someday or off-season training you've got um the old bottom brackets used to be uh 68 and mm -hmm. then mountain bikes were a little bit wider mm -hmm. and now uh road bikes have gone to the 30 for the press end yep. and now on these tell me about the bottom bracket on these uh, you know, most of these actually are coming in with a standard threaded bottom people enjoy hearing. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, the bottom bracket on the frame is is wider. Um, it varies from, depending on the bike, but um, it's really just to accommodate a much wider chain line with where the gears are in the back. The rear of the frame is, is 190 or 197 millimeters, depending um, on most of these. Much like anything, there's a few different standards, but you know you have to make all the parts work together. All right, so anything else you want to say about fat bikes to people out there? Um, you know, I'd encourage anyone to get out there and try it. Um, it's great on the trail. It's great even on your, your rail trails, especially in the snow. It's, just, it, it's a lot of fun. How about suspension versus not suspension? Because I know it's not one of those things where you can get cheap knockoff and have it perform well. You, you need to buy a quality bike, and that's you know from your local bike shop probably. When you get that, you know the big question when you're out laying that much money is, do you go up to the fork, the suspension front fork, since you're getting all that extra floating anyway over the trail, or do you go with a rigid fork? And what, you know, some people are thinking they could just throw a bike suspension fork onto any fat bike someday. Is that true? Well, you definitely need to make sure that the fat bike is compatible with a suspension fork. Um, some definitely are not, both from a geometry perspective and also the size of the, the head tube itself. So like the first generation Surleys were? They are, they are not. 
at okay. all. Yeah, yeah. Some of your newer ones, like your your newer your Wednesday and your ice cream truck, they are uh, suspension compatible, but your Moonlanders and Puglies and, and stuff aren't. So you're basically looking for a tapered head too. Tape, you got it. Yeah. The you know I think the main main factor is what you're going to use the bike for. If you're going to use it as a standard mountain bike, the suspension makes a a substantial difference. It provides a lot of damping as well as uh, suspension, so you get a lot more control in your handling characteristics on the bike. If it's primarily a winter bike, rail trail, snow, stuff like that, it might not be the most necessary accessory or component on that. Yep, yep. I agree with that. You know, Just from my short time with them, uh, I used to work at a garage, and when you got into different vehicles, you would have the sports suspension, you would have the, you know, the Oldsmobile, and when you yeah. sit in the Oldsmobile, you know, it's like floating on a cloud. Yep. And the uh, the suspension fork definitely gave you that that floating on a cloud type of feel, even over the the rough terrain. Yeah. yeah. So it was nice. All right. Well, if people want to come and check out the next one, I know you have another one coming up in December. Yeah, December 3rd at um, Herd Park. Be the same time. Should be uh, 9 a.m. to uh, 1 p.m. We'll have all the bikes out there and, of course, food and everything else as well. All right. Well, thank you very much. And if you're in Connecticut, you can come try that out. Take care. Thank you very much. So there have been a lot of people who've helped me out in this hobby. Um, too many to even mention here without doing an injustice to somebody. Even the shop that first kind of messed with me and encouraged me to go out and learn how to fix my own bikes. You know, Scarlett O'Hara style, never again. So I owe a lot of uh, gratitude to all these folks, but this shop, Berlin Bicycle, was like a point on the compass for me. If I was up the night before trying to figure out why something wouldn't work, I would drag it there the next day and they would help me out. So this next segment is on the long side and I know it's not gonna be everybody's cup of tea. So hopefully you will take it for what it is. It is a behind the scenes look at a group of folks that have really been near and dear to my heart. So with that having said, a long, last day interview let's hang out at the shop the day that they closed after 30 years to my favorite bike store and unfortunately my local bike shop of choice is closing as such. It's going to be taken over by another bike shop but um, after 30 years or so the owner has decided to retire. So I'm going over to do an interview uh, with him and, and some of the other guys who work at the shop and uh, just really my favorite place to go for that just stopped to pick up some something to bring as a gift. I was like, flowers? No, that's a little weird. Thought about cake or something, and you know, it's too too late for coffee, too early for beer in mixed company, and uh, so I decided a bag of apples. It's New England, it's fall in New England, so a bag of apples seems okay. But it's, it's a little sad for me going there, because 
it's a place that's provided lots of support for me over the course of me taking on this hobby and learning about it. Uh, and it's also been like one of those points on a compass for me. So slightly melancholy, happy for him. I mean, to think about it, he has been in business since I was 15. Um, so I think it's totally reasonable that he enjoys some retirement. Um, but here we go on our way to uh, Berlin Bike in Berlin, Connecticut. Well, here we are. Hey. Hello. <laughs> Thank you. Um, your flowers would be weird. How you doing? Chris. Hey. I know it's a little weird. I've yeah. been asking to interview you for a while, and unfortunately, yeah. it's on the last day yeah. of Berlin Bike. 30 years. 30 years. So you don't look that much older than me, Yeah. but you started this when I was 15 years old. Right. So when I was yep. 15, if I was in, if I come across the state, I could have come here and you would have opened up. Yep. You're my favorite bike shop. Yeah, well, a lot of people and say that. I don't know if you know the other bike shop experiences that people have had. Right. I know I told you a little bit when right. I came over here for the first couple of times, hey, yeah. but I've been yelled at in bike shops just for asking a question. Yep. Um, I've been upsold the moment I walk through the door. Yep. You know, and I think what people find here is a vibe that's so, like, positive that once they come here, they're like customers and they're like, you know, sometimes they would hang out too much like me. Right. When you started the bike shop, what was going on? How old were you? I just graduated college and I um, didn't really have a job yet. So I drove by this location because I went to Southern Connecticut State University heading home and I saw an empty store. So I said, oh, that'd be a neat place to do a store. And, and that May, I, I put it up, we put it all together and we opened up Berlin Bicycle in a 1,200 square foot store. And I worked for Farmington Bicycle before that. So I had, you know, knew how to work on bikes and also rode bikes a lot at that time. So I kind of had both fields and I needed a job. So I created a job. That is cool. What was your major? Uh, business, business finance. Okay. So it fit cool. right into the theme of the thing. So as you started opening up the shop, what were what was going on back then? What was the vibe like in those days uh, compared to now? Mountain bikes were in were just starting to come, so I was one of the first people to get mountain bikes in, so that helped. Um, I had two companies that I knew from Farmington Bicycle, um, General Bicycles and um, Pook Bicycles, and they gave me 25 bikes each, I believe, at the time. And I had to pay them off one by one. When I sold the bike, I had to pay them. So that helped with getting going. Getting some stock in. Getting some stock going. And this is 1986. Six. Yep, 1986. And then we, um, mountain bikes really started to come. And I jumped on mountain bikes real early. And I think that really helped the store at that time pop. Because a lot of the shops around here were all roadie shops. And they really didn't like mountain bikes. Road bike people at that time didn't like mountain bikes. And um, so they kind of stayed away from it, which meant we grew more. So, and that's one of the things that really helped us. And then we also got into road bikes. And just really my theory here is that you have a little bit of everything for everybody, not something for one person. And I think that's over the years because the trends of the bike business change wildly from year to year. And you might be stuck with a bunch of road bikes one year and sell all your mountain bikes, and one, next year you don't sell any mountain bikes, you sell all your road bikes. So it's, I think it's great to have a mixture of everything. So when you started, it was more out of, I mean, people come up to me since I started this hobby, yeah. you know, and I've got 
60 bikes at right. home in my basement they're you right. know junk and my wife's you know can we make some room you come to this out of a love of bikes without a business head you're dead you're dead well, you, you're you, dead and you came in from the business perspective right. and then developed a love of bikes that was already kind well, of there I started when I was 15 years old at Farmington Bicycle so I was um, probably at that time 22 I'm gonna say 23 and um, so I worked all my summers at a bike shop so I knew bikes and I grew up with bikes so I, that's kind of you know how I started and I, so I knew how to fix them and I knew how to sell them because that's what I did so I mean I had both both things you know really I never went to a, the, to a mechanical school but you know a lot of these companies do have classes and where you and you read and and you, you grow and so the craziness that happens the variety of craziness that yeah. you have to deal yeah. with I yeah. mean some of the stories over the years oh, yeah. I mean I've seen stuff just in my little bit of time that I spend here with you guys yeah. you know some guy will come in ask you to diagnose a problem and then he'll look up the part on his phone and walk out you know <laughs> well, that's, that's no more now in the old days they really couldn't do that but that's the big change that's happening right now within this business that you know with the internet the way it is and people the phones you know everybody kind of calls and asks you know what you know how do I fix this and you kind of explain to them what you're about you're you know you're on the doctor you can't call your doctor up and say hey I need my arm set how do I do it you know and that's what they're trying to ask us to do when you talk about big box bikes you yep. know bicycle shaped objects yep. you're really not trying to be snobby there is a huge difference in quality yep. and, and I've seen some of the things that you've been working on back there where people will buy a bike at a big box store and then they'll bring it here and yep. <laughs> they expect you to wave a magic wand and turn you know, flexible yeah. parts into solid parts yeah, and stuff see, like that. No, we see that all the time. And it's, and so, so with all those crazy things going on, yeah. you still manage to keep it positive. Right. Like, uh, I've never seen you laugh at somebody's bike when they bring it in. Like, I've literally, before before I started coming here, I had bikes that I would bring into a shop, and they'd be like, you, you don't really want us to work on that, do you? Yeah, well, I think... Or, are you going to buy that? Are you, yeah. are you trading that in? Because yeah, well, we could throw it in the tip for you. Yeah, well, you know, a lot of people say that. You know, like I said, I've been in the business a long time, and I can kind of make uh, chicken salad out of chicken shit, as they say. <laughs> Yep. and try to make it work and, and then I'm, that's the old school so that that might change I believe that will change in this world because you know we're in the world of replace you know not do not fix throw it away get a new one so but I really appreciate you know like I would come in with whatever it could be yeah like any bike it could be a ten dollar bike from a church sale yeah and you guys would never like make me feel bad at it we mm. might all have a laugh about it right or it might not be the right size or something i remember i came in with a steel soma road bike yep. the old the old somas not right. the new soma and uh i i needed a bolt on the back and you helped me out you know at the same time you were like that's showing me that it doesn't fit you properly but you, you didn't like hate yeah. on it and, and, and that, in your face i mean and, you know, yeah and yeah. that encouraged me to be like well yeah. gosh i you know he's he's kind of right and you know there are some things that aren't fitting right about this but I love getting out there on my $10 bike and then I'm gonna go and get a Surly right, you know right, and then you know better. I want to go up to a Surly I'm right. not quite up to the independent fab you know yeah, yeah. or anything like that but you um, so many people like that who I talk to who have like identified this as their their right. local bike shop have been like that's the thing about it mm -hmm. is you're you're into supporting riders in their hobby right. my mother-in-law i mean yep, yep, she, yep. she is so ecstatic mm -hmm. you know because even so many shops are sexist 
and they walk into uh, a, a woman will walk into a shop and they will be treated in a different way well, especially if there's no women working there well, and you guys it. are yep. always like so yep. normal you're no, like normal just, normal uh, good people because we have many people, customers, which I find it funny, but and I, I kind of do it the same way with my mechanic, my car mechanic, that will say, they'll bring their bike in and just say, okay, do whatever you need to do, you know. That's, I'd say more people than less do that, where the, uh, the, this repair is going to cost you 100 and they look at you and say, whatever it takes, because I know you'll do it right. And yeah. that's, most of our customers who do say that. Yeah. Every once in a while we do have people who, you know, kind of, you know, push us, you know, what is it going to be exactly? But most of our customers will say, "Do what, do what it needs." We know you'll do it right. Going back again, when people look at me in the hobby and they're like, "You should open a bike shop someday," and I'm like, uh, "You know, it's 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 not something that you would make a lot of money on if right. you were if you wanted to do it ethically and nice. It's right. it's the type of thing where has it treated you good anyway? I mean, with all that in mind, knowing that you're not you're not doubling your your profits on right. each sale or something like that you're you're making a profit but at the same time it's like you're not a millionaire no it, and, and, and that people think that you know you, you're making tons of money on this but they don't they, the funny thing is that people come in here when we're busy they all come in at the busy time springtime you know during the winter from November to March you know we're kind of looking for things to do and and, you, and if you look at you're, you're being you're paying your employees the same amount during that time and then you are during the summer so it's a tough business I mean I, I see a lot of these shops who get in the skis and in the bikes and, and they got they have the offset but the problem is that that year that we don't get any snow you know they have good years they have bad years and they're sticking they're sitting on all that stuff and it also kind of does give us some downtime during the winter because we crank out so much during the summer um, it's it's a it's peaks and valleys as I always say and another great way to look at it is I always, I always call ourselves farmers you know we're just like a farmer we we we, we till the, the fields during the summer and during the winter we sit and we wait until spring again yep no, no I picked up on that a little bit that vibes there yeah. so I want to ask you about some of your favorite like episodes, like things that have happened in here. Are there, is there, you're looking back over 30 years, is there anything that really stands out as like one of those good memories that you're gonna? I mean, well, I think there's lots of good memories. A lot of the you know the employees over the years. I think you know it's fun. It's fun to see how your employees come back who who worked here and they come back and they say, "Wow, you really helped me later on." You know, I can know I can name a couple people who a couple people couldn't even speak to customers when they came in, and now they're working as you know in other industries and they're doing phenomenal. So, I think it's one of the nice things that you, the people that come through the shop, they come and they go, the family. And they all seem to come back and, you know, say thank you for what you've done. Yeah, that's cool. And, and that's, you know, there's a couple good things, you know. It's, we, every, we, have, we have a lot of fun with, with everything here, you know, the mixture. No, it's, it's definitely got a good vibe for the shop. You've got different characters. I feel like, I feel almost like a cross between Norm and Cliff, but I only appear every 10th episode. Yeah. <laughs> but you've got some definite characters, and, and everybody's got their own specialty. Right. You know, Bruce is kind of like, to me, I always describe him to other people as like a 
uh, slightly short Obi-Wan Kenobi of bikes. Right, right. Okay. <laughs> you know, he's, and he's, he's, he's the overall, you know, the, so knows, the, knows the history of bikes, knows what, how to, you know, things to fix, you know. O-Stop does, right now, does all of it, you know, keeps the store functioning by buying and selling, you know, making sure we have right product here. Trevor is your, your bench and disc brake guy. Everybody always has a role here, a different role. And if, and if it's a role that we need that person usually to fit in, they kind of will work on that and make and fit into that role. So... <laughs> was it just personal stuff at this point that decided it's time to retire? Or I've been doing it for 30 years. Oh, really? yeah. you know, it's just coming to the same place for 30 years. You know, I've, I've, I sat down and I tried to figure out how many Saturdays I had off. I, had off. You know, I think in 30 years I'm going to have like 55 Saturdays off. Oh, my God. And you think about that. You know, I started this when I was 14. I didn't start it. You know, I was starting high school. I, never, I worked every Saturday in high school, too. And then um, the other thing is time vacation. It's, you know, it's time to go and I want to see the world. I want to see the country. I've never seen America. And if I do see it, I have to see it during the winter, and I want to see it during the summer. So it was no final straw? No, like, no, no, no. Oh, they started making 30-millimeter bottom brackets. Uh, I'm out! It's a little bit of everything. You know, there is a lot. Some of that. There is a lot of change coming with the bike business. But every company wants their own standards, and then they won't make a product to fit that standard. So that you're like, you know somebody who's got a four or five year old bike and they can't get a set of wheels for because they don't make that standard anymore that's yep. kind of getting crazy I mean there's there's a lot of craziness going on in this industry because they're all the industry is getting smaller there's less units being sold by the statistics and these companies aren't slowing down their production so there seems to be sometimes a glut of bicycles so these companies want to make something different than the other guy and and they're using standards that the other, nobody's none of the companies are using the same standards so you know bottom between bottom brackets and wheels and discs and, and I mean it's, it is getting crazy no that's uh, that's one learning curve that yeah. I'm still way yeah. on um, even though I've been working on them for years now as well right. it's just the 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 crazy standards that have come and wi went with the stuff that I work oh, yeah. with, you know that those bearings that we got yeah, 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 the other day, the they're, they're the wrong size, but they were put in by somebody who had leftovers from yeah. another failed standard right, right. that somebody tried to do for BMX oh, yeah, bikes yeah. back in the 80s. Yeah, what do we find out? It's what, two years? Or that was, that was, yeah, that was two years years during the 80s and somebody tried to put them into a 90s road wheel. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's, we see that a lot, though. I mean, did you work on your bike? Why, why is all the parts on backwards? Oh, I didn't do anything. <laughs> I mean, that's a common thing and here somebody walks in and I mean, it takes us two or three seconds to look at it and say, that, you know, something's definitely wrong here. But the cut, you know, just riding along, I don't know how that happened. I kept having a problem with my quick release on the back. It wouldn't hold on right. The wheel kept going and tilting out of the left-hand side of the, of the, of the frame. Of the frame. Yep. And it would rub on the tire. Yep. And I'd, it would work for a long time. Yep. And then it would just do it around a corner at some point. I was riding with the club at that point. Right. I was, like, embarrassed. I couldn't figure it out. And I brought it in. Bruce is like, your, your spring's on backwards on that side. And I'm like, no, no, I've checked that. Yeah. He's like, check it again. Yeah. And I felt so embarrassed. Yeah. But at the same time, yeah. he, he didn't make me feel embarrassed. Yeah. He, he was like, it happens to everybody. Right, we see it all the time. But it's like, it's like that type of thing where it's like, wow, here was like my kind of last resort. And right. at first, I would feel like a dog with a tail between its legs saying like, I can't figure this out. Right. And then after a while, it was kind of like, I knew that you guys were going to help me figure out what was going on with it. You right. know, whether no, it was I mean, uh, brake cable or something. And and you're like that with yeah. all kinds of customers. Yeah, but you know? I mean, we don't always. I mean, a lot of times we can, we've can. we been doing this so long that we can kind of pick stuff out like that. But 
in other situations, we have to leave it. And it might, we might look at it for a while and say, what's going on here? And then back to what you said before, at one time it was supposed to have this axle in it and they somebody stuck the wrong axle in it you know that's the kind of things because there's no standards in a lot of this stuff it's 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 hard so going back looking over the 30 years yep what's the favorite bike you've ever had in the shop the bike uh, that you coveted the most as having it uh, on the floor I, I think it was kind of fun um, when we did build a bike for a ray allen i mean i think that was kind of the probably the cool one of the cool things we did and we built it um, we had if independent fabrication built him at the time was leading technology. He was, you know, a, I, independent fabrications known for their steel bikes, but they, it was one of the first carbon bikes they they made. And also was the year the it was the year that electronics came out, uh, electronic shifting came out. So that was, the, you know, the so we got the new the new frame, carbon frame that I have made, and also the electronic um, shifting. So that was pretty a really cool bike at that time. So what what time period was that? Mm, probably like ten years ago. I'm going to say right now. Eight years ago, probably eight years ago, when he played for the Celtics. So it's, it's been four, you know, probably five years since then. And was he up from the Boston area? Had he come uh, down he here. Lived, he lives in he lived in Cromwell, and oh. so he came over, and um, we got we fixed this bike before, and we right. mentioned at the time. I'm trying to think what team he played for, the Wizards maybe. I think he played for a purple bike, and one of the guys where we said, you know, you need a Celtics bike, and he goes, really? And he said, you can build me that? I said, yeah, we can. So we built the bike as all Celtics colors, okay. and um, it was pretty. It was a neat project. What size was the frame? He wasn't that big, uh, 58 maybe. Oh, wow. Six, 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 58, 60. He's not really super tall. He came in with Donnie Marshall once. Well, Donnie Marshall was tall. Yeah. And he came in with him once, and he was a lot, you know, he was a big guy. So um, maybe take a walk around the shop, go into the workshop, talk yeah. to Bruce? Yeah, yeah, we can do that. Yeah, okay. That sounds good. Cool. I am here with my personal Obi-Wan Kenobi of Bicycle Things. Uh, when I've been stuck, I come down here. He was so supportive when he would tell me what was wrong that I, I started to feel less bad about having to bring stuff here when I couldn't figure it out. He let me know that everybody occasionally gets stuck on bike stuff. So I just want to thank you for all the help that you've given me with this hobby and uh, all the times you've helped me problem solve and learn something. Well, you're quite welcome. My philosophy has always been that part of our job is not just to make money, it's to help people with their bicycle issues, educate them, and give them a hand so they get as much out of it as we do. I've been doing it for 43 years and uh, probably my greatest sense of satisfaction is still teaching people something unusual. Last night I helped one of the guys here overhaul a three-speed hub for his first time. So it was an old Sturmy Archer and it was a lot of fun. He got a big kick out of it and he took it home and he rode it immediately. So that's the kind of thing. That's, that's as much fun as anything. It's a lot more fun than selling bikes. Mm -hmm. And it's probably more fun than working on bikes, but working on bikes is a lot of fun too. But helping people out, you know, giving them some information and direction, I think it's incumbent on us in the industry with the knowledge to make sure other people get it. So for me, it's like watching the last episode of Cheers a little bit. There might be a spin-off series, yes. but um, it's not going to be quite the same. What, looking back on it, what, when did you join the, 
the experience here. When did you join? I came to work here in uh, November, end of November, early December of 1993, under very strange circumstances. Chris's mechanic at the time was mountain biking the night before Thanksgiving and uh, had an unknown heart issue, which caused him to have a, a massive heart failure mountain biking. Oh, no. Chris knew I was recently unemployed and contacted me later, and I came to work around the time that he was hospitalized with acute appendicitis. <laughs> So it was interesting the first few days. I hadn't planned on staying that long. You know, I was thinking, okay, I'll help out. I'll fill in. I'd already been in the bike business 20 years. And so from 1993 to 2016 turned into a little bit longer than just a little while. uh, There were were issues, uh, family issues and medical issues that complicated my life the next year and stayed and stayed. And, you know, we worked well together. You know, we went through uh, a lot of growth uh, with our expansion in 1996 and uh, we have uh, different but complementary strengths. You know, Chris is a real businessman. He, he knows how to run a shop. I mean, he's very good. I have a lot of the old knowledge from having done it for so long and worked for people that really wanted you to know what they were doing. So we developed subspecialties. We develop a market for retro bikes, if you will, steel frames, traditional setups. We do a lot of that. And that's been one of my real pleasures. I mean, I, I, we didn't have uh, one of the long-term, you know, two-hour-long fittings or anything like that, but just you setting up my Surly for me after taking a few measurements for about 15 minutes was the most comfortable bike I've ever been on. So, I mean, you've got this instinctual knowledge about stuff that comes from all those years. Yeah, to a point I do. You know, people have specific problems. It's a little bit different, but if someone is fairly normal, you can size them up pretty easily. But to me, that's key. There's no right fit. There's the right fit for you. You need to be comfortable on your bike so you get the most pleasure out of it. Uh, I don't follow a formula that said, boom, 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 this is what you need. I yeah, think. no, you asked me a series of questions, and exactly. it was just like, it wasn't very long either. It was like 20 minutes, and then then when the bike came and I sat on it, it was like it had been, you know, made exactly for me. You know, it was pretty cool. Well, and you know, having been a long-time bicycle tourist, I still love setting up touring bikes and seeing people get out on tour and then reading their reports. I have a friend who's left yesterday for the Natchez Trace. Where is that? That's, I never even heard that's that. That's in the south. It's an old Indian trail. It is an adventure cycling route. And uh, this time he has full SAG service. His wife is going and uh, she's going to drive a car during the day and do some sightseeing and meet him. Uh, I think it's about 700 miles long, if I remember correctly. But he just finished riding the Transamerica Trail oh, this wow. past summer. So this guy tours a lot. And, yeah, he uh, does. We did a major refurbishment of his touring bike in the spring. and. In his 4,500-mile cross-country tour, he didn't have a single problem. So I, I take a lot of satisfaction in that, that, you know, we got him set up. And it's like you get to go vicariously a little bit with everybody well, that I you do, help Well, I do, I do. Again, he, he had a, uh, a company called Track My Tour, where you can post updates to your tour and pictures daily. And that's what he did. So I followed him daily. He's doing it again on this one. It'll be kind of, it's kind of fun. It was a lot of fun when he did the, the Trans Am Trail, since I had done it 40 years ago. To see what they were seeing, uh, two of my friends were actually riding together, both posting. So it was kind of fun when I'd see they stayed in the same town I stayed at, or 
maybe the same campground yep. even yep. and uh, encountered a lot of the same same experiences so there's this fraternity of touring it is, if somebody is. if somebody's touring anywhere where you've toured before it's like you can immediately identify with them make a connection with them you oh know? yeah yeah and you know what's interesting uh, when I when I did my tours many years ago 1976 for the bicentennial it was called bike centennial 76 and we were just struck by how open people were to us they you know took us into oh, yeah. their homes they fed us gave us places to camp and you can still have that experience 40 years later i yep. think that's remarkable i think that's terrific yeah it's it's amazing that that it's also surprising to everybody that people are so nice oh when, yeah, when, yeah when you're just being normal when you're just out for a bike ride or something like that that there's you know we we had the lady forever in my head she's like holding a tea kettle outside and she goes do you want some tea oh you know yeah. and it's just like that was in she's, England. Yeah. yeah yeah and she's just saying you're in tenders you want yeah. some tea yeah. you know i know what you're doing yeah and, <laughs> you know and people i find are genuinely curious about you and what you're doing and you think that doesn't happen anymore, but it still does. It's nice. I'm looking forward to when I can ride cross-country again. I think there's a little bit, even in people who would never put their leg over a bike, there's a little bit of thinking, just that little thought that they've always had that they could always take off on a bike someday and just go down the road. Absolutely. And I you think know. that that's that universal thing that you pick up on. That that's why people are you know, always willing to talk to somebody on a bike who's going on a long distance because secretly, even if it's just 1% of your brain that's occupied with that thought, you, if you've ever thought it before, it's still there. Oh, that's yeah, like yeah. and you know what? You anybody can do. do it. Anybody can do it. I have a friend who is a customer, uh, and uh, I met him later in life uh, when he moved up this area. He's 79 years old, and he just finished the Allegheny Passage and the CNO Canal. 380 miles, I guess it is, from Pittsburgh to D.C., and then he took the train back. Totally on his own, self-contained, staying at bed and breakfast. So um, anybody can do it. You, you choose a route that you can do. You choose the daily mileage that you can do, and you work up to it. It's a, it's a, it's a real equalizer yeah, for people. Yeah. And, um, you can't beat the experience. So that, that that's been a great that's given me a great deal of satisfaction helping people enjoy enjoy that as well as other things. I think it's interesting though is how your perspective changes. In my early uh, years of touring, I hated dirt roads. And probably it's a, a result of what we used for tires and our setups. Dirt roads just weren't, you know, very enjoyable. Now, I see dirt roads. Yeah, yeah. Now we we've got the whole fat tire revolution even our road bikes have bigger tires and and we can ride anything and have a good time so i like that i like that aspect so as you look back when did you start with bikes well funny story i was visiting a friend um obviously i rode bikes as a kid yeah. but maybe when i was 19 20 years old i um i was visiting a friend in college in maine and uh, they had kind of an odd dormitory set up. It was like a little village of these little cottages. I was out hanging out, and somebody there had an old three-speed bike. I said, well, I'll take it for a ride. I got on it, I'm riding around. I said, wow, this is great. <laughs> so the next spring, and I guess I was, the next spring I was probably 20 or 21, and I bought my first bike. It was heavy as hell. It was a Schwinn Varsity, weighed a ton. But having grown up with coaster brake bikes, I thought it was the greatest thing since sliced bread. <laughs> And within a year, I bought a better bike, and within two years of that, um, I was in the bike business, 1973, uh, working for Bloomfield Bike. Well, that was at the height of the 10-speed boom. boom. It was the 10-speed boom. You sold all these bikes that people didn't ride. More bikes than cars. More bikes than cars. Uh, it's nice today that when people buy bikes, 
they ride them. Fewer people rode their bikes back then. It was more of a trendy thing, you know. Young people rode them, uh, quote-unquote hippies rode them, which I guess we could qualify me as that back in those days. But it was, uh, it was an interesting time, you know. We had 25 or 30 employees. We had a night shift doing repairs and assemblies overnight. I mean, it's not quite like that anymore. That no. has changed. <laughs> but it was, it was interesting to, be, to, to experience that era, and I have uh, friends who were also in the industry at that time and, uh, and remember it. And uh, I took a couple of brief respites from it, uh, took some time off for my cross-country tour course. And then I took, some, I took a month off to tour overseas in England. And um, so those were gaps. And then I worked at the outdoor shop. Twice I had short stints at outdoor shop, but I've always come back to the bike shop. Now that I'm approaching 66 uh, in a couple of months, I'm going into semi-retirement. I'm taking the winter off. I want to heal my recent knee injury, but I'm still going to be involved with bikes. You know, we have our, our program in New Britain where we fix up bikes for uh, disadvantaged kids as well as adults who need basic transportation. We've been doing that for quite a long time and it just keeps reinventing itself. Of course, you have your program with student and uh, are you, you still go up to uh, Bicico? Yep. yep. So you're, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yep. yeah. And, and uh, that seems to be happening in a lot of towns. I just read an article in a magazine uh, of a nonprofit shop similar to that was a formal shop but it's nonprofit and they specialize in refurbishing and rehabbing bikes so someone can get a bike for less than $200 that's functional. So I'll, I'll continue to do that. Probably going to work part-time next season. As I said, I'm going to take the winter off but I'll never be done with bikes. You know, I got a lot of tours to do. I'm going to pipe dream plan is to ride cross country again on the 50th, 50th anniversary of my first tour. That was 1976, I was 25. The next one will be 2026, and I'll be 75. Now, I don't see any reason I can't do it since I have all these friends who are in their 70s that put on three or four or 5,000 miles a year, so well, I, why not? I, I haven't said this before, Bruce, but uh, you know, now I got the chance. I, I want to be you when I grow up. <laughs> Be careful I'm going to be a little goofier, but be, be I'm going to be a taller version of you. Uh, be careful what you wish for. You just might get it. But, yeah. uh, but there's a lot of people like me, uh, the old school, and most of us are friends, you know. Uh, but all over the country, there's people like us. and uh, You taught me it was okay to say steel is real in a mixed company. Well, exactly. <laughs> you know, and... and uh, admittedly, that's one of my prejudices. I like steel. I like titanium. I don't have any carbon, but that's a personal choice. But I don't buy a lot of bikes either. You know, my newest bike is a four-year-old, almost five-year-old now. Waterford. Most of my daily rides are twenty years old. I think I come from the when all those bikes from your boom years got put into the garage. When I first started this hobby, and I would be acquiring bikes, so many of those bikes would be those bikes that were never ridden. Exactly. Those steel 10 speeds from the boom that I would get and I would look at in amazement because they were just like, they were rusty, surface rust or whatever, but they were practically unused. And I was a little bit spoiled by that. It's getting a nice steel 10 speed from those that period required very little work to get it back on the road again and to get it riding again. Right, just and that's where I kind of cut my teeth when, yeah. I, when I started teaching. Well, I remember when you first that. came in and you bought your, I think it was a hard rock you got. Yep. The mountain bike, the hard rock 29er. Yep. And, uh, and, you know, we got to know each other because we found, well, I found that um, your, your mother in law 
was a customer of mine that I, I spent a lot of time with setting her up on bikes. And so you you got the, I know you had some trouble with the hard rock. I don't think it was enough bike for you at the time. You were you were more rider than the bike was bike. Well, I'm a Clydesdale. But, but then you started uh, started getting into the old bikes and coming in. You'd, you'd have a question and you'd call me and say, what? What is what is what do I use in here? What kind of bearing goes in here? How do I do this? There are all these. Uh, oh, here, come on in, Mark. We have another old bike gummer here, Mark Hoffman. Uh, hey, Mark. Hey. We're talking about uh, you know Tom when he got into it a few years ago. Uh, well, actually, I thought to me. Ten years ago? More? I can still remember it. It was like an epiphany. You were like, there's this thing called the B-adjust screw. And I'm like, the B-adjust screw. <laughs> I now know about chain wrap. Everything makes sense now. I think that the... I was the, just looking at that bike out there. <laughs> Which one? That, that, that one by whatever it is. And yeah. in, in the, the way the derailleur attaches to the to the thing, it's like offset off the back. Yeah. I haven't really looked at any of those because I kind of ignore that stuff mostly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's like I can't. Like, oh, that's, that's cute. How they did that? Oh, look at that. Oh, it's. Like, I guess they must have pulled it back so so it can accommodate that huge cassette in the back. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Now they got cassettes bigger than chain rings. What yes, the they do. <laughs> it's huge. I think Tom channels a little bit of you because he, you know, after he got his adult bike, his yep. mountain bike, he started picking up tag sale bikes, old ten speeds from our bike boom days, rehabbing them and calling me and saying, what do I need for this? What do yeah. I need for that? And, you know, he would come in and say, well, what's the tool for this? And he would buy his tools, and uh, we've created a monster in our image. <laughs> good, 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 good. And I'd start going for the uh, park tools that are no longer made but available sometimes. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> eBay and swap meets. Um, there's always something out there, you know, and, and you accumulate so many tools. Now, what did I buy from you? I bought you the cotterless crank, no, the cotter pin remover tool. Oh, the press. Oh, the oh, cotter, the cotter pin press, pin press oh. from you up in, before we knew each other, I think I bought that from you up in uh, Munson, back when Munson was in Munson. Maybe. Was it a VAR, the big one, or the small one? The park. It was the park. The park, yeah. I had, I had an extra one of those. Yeah? Yeah. Wow. I remember when he bought it. I yeah, I was so happy, and I was like, hey, hey, guess what I got? And then he goes, I know who you bought it from. Bar used, used to make one that was like this big, it looked oh, like yeah. a bolt oh, cutter. Yeah. Yeah. It was green, and uh, but they broke all it. If you didn't use them just right, you could break them. Yeah, and, and they we, would also mushroom the, the heads of the, the threaded I, I head. broke one, or somebody oh. broke one of those back when I worked at Suburban years and years ago. I don't know, Tom, did you ever have to take them out the way we did when we ruined them? We had to chisel the top off, you know, the, the mushroom threaded portion, chisel it off, then take the bike, set it on the vise, yeah. put some solvent in the pin slot, and drive it out with a drift punch on the vise. And you did it on the vise so you didn't damage the bearings in the yeah. bottom bracket. No. Yeah, it was no. tedious. Wow. I, used to do, I used to do that with two ball peen hammers yeah. to take it out with. And if you hit it just right, it would come out pretty good. Yeah. I did. I did. That sounds much more sensible than what I ended up doing. I, I would end up making weird type of, uh, what's the guy's name with all the elaborate contraptions? Rube Goldberg. Rube yeah. Goldberg, yeah. I did yeah. some Rube Goldberg yeah. things, and I would not repeat them again because they never worked. Well, the, wow, you it was know. one of those things where you needed two people. People. Yeah, you know, it's like putting a fixed cup in a vice. You yeah, know, that, yeah. That's, yep. that was always a dubious thing, but it usually worked. And now there are tools for that. Yeah. yeah, that's why I was so ecstatic when I finally got the actual tool. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. We've all had to do the, the jury rigged job to solve a problem that shouldn't be there, but some of the, what we do is primitive. Like if you've ever seen a cold set of steel frame, you do it with a long 2x4 and a small 2x4, and all you're doing is just 
Well, crank it to the frame. It, it, both, but it has to say frame tool. On yes, it. yes. <laughs> you have to frame, write it frame on my magic marker. Yes. Frame tool. I did it yesterday. Who threw my frame tool off? <laughs> yeah. Where are my wooden blocks? <laughs> I'm always looking for wooden blocks to, to hammer rims back into submission because some rims are just bent, you know? So you gotta, you gotta, I mean, my, the preferred method is usually two hands and a knee because you can, you're pretty good under control, but sometimes you don't get enough torque that way and you gotta smack it. But the, the key is actually, I think, smacking it on the inside edge of the rim. If you hit the sidewall of it, it'll, you, you can dent the sidewall and so the rim goes like this, you know, and then that's a real problem. I think if some people saw how we work on their bikes sometimes. <laughs> you don't want to yeah, see this. Yeah, see <laughs> that's why they put the patients under. That's right, that's right. But I had to do one just yesterday, an old Bridgestone. I was putting a new wheel on and originally it was spaced about 128 millimeters. I don't want to get too technical, but it had to go to 135, so Simple cold set, and mm -hmm. the new wheel works perfectly. You're able to keep the frame aligned. Um, it's got to make sure the dropouts are realigned. Yeah. Yeah. But it, uh, it was that was good. one of the first nice tools I had was a set of Campy H tools. Oh, I thought you were going to say a couple of blocks of two by four. Rock, a box of rocks. I was so happy. I drove across the state. I actually ended up buying it out of a guy's uh, toolbox. And then I came here, and then you guys had two on the wall. But the old uh, BT3 tool to adjust the brakes. Oh, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So you get, it just helps you with the toe-in. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you, could, that, yeah, you, you yeah. could use an adjustable wrench, but it's so much nicer. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, that's, what, that's how we started. It was funny. When I, when I first was in the in the bike shop, everybody carried a six-inch crescent wrench in their back pocket with a leather strap tied onto it so you could whip it up quick and do adjustments. And that tool, it did everything. It was many years after I started that we finally had the brake towing tool. Unfortunately, they don't fit the newer brakes. Yeah. They yeah. only fit the older brakes. But if you work on old bikes, you I can't beat having two, two crescent wrenches. Yeah. Because you can, you can adjust in two different planes if you had to, but you really don't have to. I, actually, I use that for chain ring straightening. Yeah. But used to use two crescent wrenches because yeah. you could bend it. You can bend the arms like that or like that, you know. That. Or you could just stick a pry bar down between the chain rings and lean Bill, on it. Bill Knuckles, he was my he was my guru for chain ring straightening. He had so much patience and, and technique. He could ch straighten chain rings really well. During my first job there at Bloomfield, it was pretty interesting. There was an old Italian gentleman there. Uh, Carmelo Maca, and he had had uh, a bike shop in Syracuse, and he had a little leather tool pouch that he used to, you know, sell with his, his bikes, but he had all these interesting uh, tools for straightening steel rims, and he, he could use them on alloy rims as well, but they were really made for straightening steel rims, and he could do wonders. You, you, you'd take a wheel to him, he had a heavy accent, you'd take the wheel and you'd say, Carmelo, line wheel? He said, yeah, a little bit, a line of wheel, and then he would fill out his ticket, uh, you know, line of wheel, a little bit, or or line of veal, too much or too much, so you know how much to charge the customer. <laughs> but he was, he was, he was great. He was a character, but he had all all these tools, and uh, he was the uh, the wizard at the shop. Now you, now you are a wizard. I'm now I'm the crazy guy in the back. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes I speak it with the accent. <laughs> so you guys kind of encouraged me along this particular hobby. When you see a part, and the hardest thing now is to get to a point where I'm throwing stuff away because I know that I could strip that wheel down I could use this part I could use that part I could use this part I could use that part where where do you get to the point where you start to be able to manage the stuff at your house well, your like wife is starts your, really good oh yeah no I know I, we have this 
joke, the whole N plus one joke, where yeah, everybody yeah. who has less yeah. than 50 bikes makes this joke that yeah. says, you know, how many bikes is a perfect number? You go N plus one. Yeah. That number is 60. When you get to 60 bikes and you can't walk through the basement anymore, that is the Are you saying you have 60 bikes? I, I had 60 bikes. Did you? Yeah. Wow. And so I've, I've pared it down to where it's a little bit less, but I've got a little storage set. I mean, they're all to be fixed up. You know, they're... I, well, I've never had that problem because I don't tend to collect. I, I, uh, I, uh, I collect things that I, I think I'll use or that, uh, you know, I'll have for the future. So you were immunized against the uh, collecting I bug? think probably because I never had a lot of space. You know, uh, I have a basement now, but it doesn't have, a, you know, a lot of bikes. I personally only have four riding bikes right now and, and my tandem, a couple of frames. So uh, I'm not as addicted as some people are, and I'm, I find it a little easier to throw away things, but I try not to bring those in in the first place. I mean, I try and tell myself it's not about having all the bikes, it's about having had ridden all these bikes and then getting them onto well, the next place. Really, I think the important thing is if you, if you, I'm getting to the point now where I, I, I was going to keep a, a, a little tag on each bike, and every time I rode it, put a, a write the date I wrote it on, and then come up with some kind of formula so that if you didn't ride this bike so many times within a year, you should put it on the block maybe, you know, because That's a why, good idea. Do you ha why do you have it, you know? Yep. I really only have a couple bikes that I, I, I don't ride. I mean, I don't ride all of them as much as I should ride them, but there's a couple that, you know, are just kind of more, not really museum pieces, but they're, they've got issues as far as rideability at, the, at this stage of their life, you know? Like I got this one, like probably an early 50s Dawes, and originally had a three-speed simplex derailleur to kind of with the springs on it, and, and the one the derailleur that was on it was totally shot. I mean, I try, everything I tried, I tried to make the thing work. Not that I'm an expert on that derailleur because they're they're they predate most of us, and and you don't see too many of them. But but it was the original derailleur on the bike, you know. So then I made it into a 15-speed bike, you know, conventional gearing and stuff, and. Uh, then I, I tried to make it back into the original threes because it had a one eighth inch three speed cod on the back. It was a Merrillville or some kind of some French thing. It was a, and it was on these really nice uh, Europe, not Airlight, really nice hubs, <laughs> English hubs. And uh, I, I tried to put all of it on because I figured, oh, you know, all of it. They put them on all these high end bikes yeah, back yeah, then. They did. It worked terrible. Yeah. <laughs> and I put I, I put a three speed crank set on it too because it had. This LA crank set that was so, I don't know if they were called LA's or not, but it was a cotter crank set. And I, the reason I bought this bike was because it was owned by Jimmy Doom, who was a, a New Britain bike legend. He was this old guy that uh, lived with this guy, Ernie St. Pierre, and they were both bike bike bums, really, in a way. But they both worked at, in the, as, as janitors at the hospital. Jimmy was friends with Gene Portuizzi that, that started Cyclopedia, and he had a bike shop out in Detroit, I guess it was. And uh, so Jimmy would go out there and buy bikes and then ride them back. Claude Renault, another friend of mine, he, he helped Jimmy move one day and he bought the bike from him for 50 bucks. So Claude said, called me up one day and said, you want to buy that bike? And I go, oh yeah, you know, how much you want for it? Uh, 200 bucks. I, oh. So he brings it over and I said, okay. I said, I only try it out. So I go out to rumble on my driveway and it had alloy cottered cranks. And I, and I just the first snap, punk, I snapped the crank. It like it broke right where the cotter pin was, you know. And I'm going, oh, I guess I bought it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? so, so I did buy it, you know. And I actually found a an SR crank 
that a machine, a talented machinist could probably duplicate that other crank because it had a really nice profile to it and everything. And, but the SR was like this massive, it almost looked like a, like a blank that somebody should machine a crank out of. You know? <laughs> and I've seen that crank, you know, here and there, but usually they're attached to a bike where the guy wants like 300 bucks for it or something like that. Yeah, I, I don't get into that. I didn't want to, you know, I said, no. I put, I tried to put a three-speed crank on it with the eight because it won't yeah. eight chain. It, it it sounds terrible, you know. I don't know. I have to do something with it. That's, our, that's a whole other thing. Our three speed phase. There was a time in the seventies where I and uh, a number of my coworkers got into this whole, you know, anti elitist thing, and we were riding old steel three speeds everywhere. We were doing century rides. We were doing things like Mount Greylock, and it was stupid. But we were young and strong and stupid. Uh, and, but we had great uh, a great time with it. Uh, I don't even have, currently own a three speed. I, I need to one, get one. We built one with tubulars once. Yeah, it was, a, it was on a, you know it was on a Viscount frame. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, you're naming all my favorites. I got three dogs at home. That uh, you spend all your one free time shopping for bikes. You know, I stop because I am at the limit of that right yeah. now. But. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm looking for parts usually like they're puzzles. It's like they're they're pets. Yeah. They're yeah. almost like yeah. pets, but they're puzzles as well. And yeah, it's I think like puzzles you, are better now. Yeah. So these bicycle puzzles, like I'll have a frame and I'll start to build it up one way, and things just aren't going right, you know. And it's just like I have to put it aside, and then at least in a not shop environment it's like you're waiting for the right pieces the right uh the that's right group exactly, that's, the right that's, group that's to come why into you your accumulate life. all these parts because you're not really sure what's going to go on the frame i have probably about half a dozen frames hanging in my basement with at least with with, with with you know some kind of future plan of some sort because nobody wants to buy them at swap meets so i, I even try as i may to get rid of some of them but and then you know you never know what you're going to build it up and, and it's some but sometimes it works the other way you have a part and you build a bike. <laughs> an entire bike around I have a part. bike, the bike that I rode in today. I built around the fenders. Yeah. I fell in yeah. love with the fenders, even though they were kind of impractical, but they had the style points. Well, they do, yeah. You know, yeah. so I said, oh, and then, then when that frame kind of passed by, my friend wanted me to tune up his bike for him, and I told him that he didn't deserve the bike and he needed to give it to me. <laughs> and I, I kind of forced him. I think I, I think I... I rebuild other bikes for him or something and trade for it. But. Now, you talk about old people like uh, Jimmy Dune, this early cyclist around here. A lot of people don't realize that Hartford used to be home to two Olympic-class cyclists, uh, John and James Armando. And I believe it was James that actually went to the Olympics. I don't believe John went, but John was a fixture in Hartford. He was uh, always dressed in a big leather overcoat, kind of an aqualung-type street person. But when there used to be bicycle races in Colt Park, and then later around Bushnell Park, you'd always see John there talking to Joe Tosi, who was an early promoter of, of cycle racing in Connecticut. When you when you find out the history of these people, it's pretty fascinating. You know? And, of course, Connecticut was a hotbed of cycle racing. Uh, before the turn of the last century, there were tracks everywhere. You know, there were tracks in, in Hartford, East Hartford, Waterbury, Springfield, many, many towns. And, no, is 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 John or Jimmy the one who lost his shirt trying to bankroll the Esperanza movement? Oh God! One of them. One I of, don't know. One of, them, one of them lost a lot of money because he thought that that universal language was a good idea, and he somehow invested money in it and, <laughs> and lost a lot. Well, it could be go either way. It could have been maybe that's how John became a street person. Yeah, maybe I don't know. Yeah, I, don't, I, don't I don't know. know. The Paul Lemaire would know. Yeah. 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 
But yeah, it's pretty fascinating, you know, and of course when you first met John, you had no idea that was the case, but you can look him up and there they are. Yeah. John I think James Armando. I, I liked your idea from earlier. I did not get it on uh, the recording yet, but your idea of the treehouse. Oh, clubhouse. Clubhouse. Clubhouse for just bike guys. Yeah. That would be great. Yeah, it's kind of a joke. We were talking about it when I was over at my uh, brother-in-law. That's a good idea. We could have a clubhouse. We could hang out and drink beer and talk about bikes and work and bikes. neighborhood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Think of one of the old fraternal organizations that's kind of dwindled in numbers and take over their hall. That's it. Okay. <laughs> too, too bad we couldn't have gotten Schutzen Park before they rehabbed it. Mm. That would have been a good spot. Big though. I, I think we need something smaller than you know. Yeah. Because yeah. we really don't need to. Although well, you know, we could fill it. We could. Well, we could. Yeah. <laughs> Just yeah. between that's, me that's and you, we could fill it. Well, you yeah. know, I, 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 I helped run a bike program in New Britain with Cliff Parker, and, and they gave us this little room in in what was there was it was some ethnic Ukrainian club, oh, yeah. I think, and, and so they gave us this little room to use. But there was an unused gymnasium, and like by the time we were done, the gymnasium was full of bikes. I mean, I, like, you know, and the guy in charge kind of walked in one day and went, oh, you know, and it was like, what are these guys doing? If you, if you, if you let them in, they will come. Yeah, it's like, oh, yeah. You know, yeah, it's, yeah, a, it's well, a fishbowl. I remember doing triage there and, and sending the kids out with the bikes to go in the dumpster, and they're riding these bikes that have no brakes and stuff down this ramp outside. I'm like, Stop riding those bikes! <laughs> But, yeah, that's what it is. Kind of funny. All right. Well, hopefully we'll get some more stories going at some point. This won't be the last time we talk to either one of you guys. Um, Thank you Thanks a lot, Tom. Thank you. Thank you. Great. So we're here. Cheers. Cheers. Salud. On the last day of my favorite bike shop. Uh Uh-huh. You've been here for how long? About a year and three quarters now. I mean, is it? Yeah, it's been a fun time. Definitely been a ride. It's been a little bit of a journey, I'd say. They kind of took me in as part of their family and taught me everything that I needed to know that I didn't already know. Been riding bikes for uh, probably eight years now. So, well, I went down to school in Savannah, Georgia and started doing the whole fixed gear scene there and rode there for a while and then came back here and got myself into mountain biking. So that was probably been mountain biking for three or four years now and that's where I love to spend most of my time. So was this your first job working at a bike shop? Nope. Uh, This is actually my second one. Back in high school it was actually my first job was working at a shop as a sales person on the floor and did a little bit of mechanic stuff but back then I was so young they didn't want to teach me. That was down in Savannah? Nope, that was actually back in uh, Burlington, Vermont. Oh, okay, cool. So you've been to all the cool places? I've been to a few. (laughs) Not all of them, but a few. So what's your favorite story from this shop? Um. Is there any customer or any bike that's come through that's, that's, I mean, you helped me out the other day. I I came in and Bruce was uh, incapacitated after his leg injury. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I had tried eight different ways of making that brake work. And I could not figure out in three dimensions what was going on. And then you were like, it's the outer housing. And I was like, what, how... I yeah. still don't get how that could possibly have happened, but I'm working on it. My man, my mind is ticking through. Some night, I'll wake up from a dead sleep, and I'll be like, 
that's how it works yeah. and that's why it was pushing the tire to the side but do you have like a favorite story or a favorite uh, episode from your time at Berlin bike um, I'd have to say that Tuesdays were probably our most fun days here we dubbed them inappropriate Tuesdays <laughs> just because it was stop myself um, Bruce and Mark and we just when their customers weren't in the store we were just hooting hollering and have a good time um, talk about bike stuff builds that we wanted to accomplish and what we were working on at the time and just nonsense basically it was fun yeah it's that's that's the thing that we missed the most about it and hopefully it will continue in some way Well, you've reached the end of another little bit longer episode of Bike Karma this week, but it's an homage to one of my favorite shops. So thanks again to Trevor, Bruce, Mark, and Chris for all the support over the years. Hopefully still be in touch with you guys. Thanks to Sean for Cycling Concepts, for all the info about fat bikes, and thanks to all of you for coming along for the ride. Our excellent music is from Mobjack Music. Check them out at mobjackmusic.com. They're awesome. Uh, if you want to help out the show, uh, please leave a review on iTunes. Apparently, it helps with search results. So if you leave a review on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it. Thank you to the thousand or so followers on Instagram, checking out the pictures on Bike Karma and all the related stuff like that. Thank you to over the 2,000 downloads that we have on Podbean. Thank you for those people who have followed as well. Uh, if you want to email me, you can get me at bikekarmaguy at gmail.com or you can DM me through Facebook or Instagram or Podbean. Many different options. Bike Karma and the excellent cat with the karma eyes are trademarks of Thomas Brown and all rights are reserved. Lots of great episodes coming up. Hoping to interview a bunch of people about topics like yoga, BMX, fixies, and all kinds of cool stuff. So no matter what type of bicycle you're on, until next time, remember to keep it wheel. Throw it in the fire. Knock, take my time and cut it down, down. But I'd